What is the history of museums? Museums are an example of how a story gets presented. The way that the West constructed the idea of the museum make it look as if it is, it is uniquely their invention. To a large extent, that may not be true. I'm Dan of Primary Source, and this is What Teachers Need to Know, Africa Edition, the podcast that explores current events, history, and culture with an eye towards the complexity and humanity found across this vibrant and diverse continent. The creation of this podcast was made possible through support and collaboration with the African Studies Center at Boston University. Take a moment to imagine a museum. What does it look like? What do you see? What would you find there? Perhaps you're picturing marble floors and vaulted ceilings. There may even be an art installation outside, an abstract modernist taste of the treasure trove housed within. Maybe you're imagining a crowd of people milling about in the lobby, looking at floor maps, unsure of which exhibit to visit first. You might conjure the sound of docents leading groups of students telling them to look to their left or to their right at this piece of art or that artifact. When we think of museums, especially those that are replete with artwork and cultural artifacts, we tend to imagine places that bring us into contact with the vastness of humanity and our shared creative capacity across time and space. As an institution, the museum presents itself as information-rich, a location of learning, and a nearby place that makes the far-off reaches of the world accessible. Down one hall, Egypt. Up one flight of stairs, Great Zimbabwe. Turn right, the Near East. Museums compile and curate, and they make objects that were originally separated by continents and centuries available in one place and at one time. So often, the questions that we ask ourselves when visiting a museum are, what will I learn today? And how will a visit to the museum expose me to culture and creativity? The museum can seem self-evident. The objects found there appear so natural in the grand rooms, behind velvet rope, on pedestals, or displayed in ornate frames. Yet each and every artifact in the museum traveled there. Moreover, they were organized and arranged, labeled and named, given space to be viewed or tucked away for the curator's eyes only. There is a history to the museum beyond the history of the items displayed in exhibit rooms. And within this history, there are critical and ethical questions that cannot be ignored. For instance, it's inadequate to simply say that artifacts were brought to museums. When Africa is housed in Boston or New York, Oxford or Paris, there's a story behind this transport that requires our attention and understanding. The history of how cultural creations from across the African continent came to populate museums throughout the West is inseparable from the history of colonialism in so many respects. It's for this reason that books written by scholars in the field of museum studies have titles like The Brutish Museum and Loot. Beyond the untold stories of how African art made its way across the world, there's the epistemological issues of how museums configure and display. 
there were decisions made about what to showcase and how to describe items. The act of organizing and labeling is one of creating knowledge and shaping understanding. It's an act of power, the power to make decisions and determine how meaning is constructed. Too often, the input and perspectives of people from the African continent have been absent in these curatorial processes. In this episode, we're going to consider the museum. We'll consider the ethics of displaying African creative works in the West, and we'll explore the conversation surrounding restitution, repatriation, and reparation for objects that were removed from the African continent without consent. We'll think about the responsibility of museums today to acknowledge how their collections were born and to shine a light on the processes of returning items to countries throughout Africa. Let's start by talking to a museum curator and scholar who considers these questions in his work every day. My name is Andy Ezelwamba. Currently, I am the African art curator at the Virginia Museum of Fine Art in Richmond, Virginia. I was born and raised in Nigeria. I specialized in the visual cultures of shrines. I also focus on uh, museums and the politics of collection. Conversations about repatriation and restitution I have also taken up as a big challenge going forward. In order to understand the politics of repatriation and restitution, we first need to understand the concept of the museum. What exactly is a museum? Why do humans create them? And what is their purpose? Humans have actually been with this whole idea of museums right from the very beginning. The way we arrange things and continuously accumulate things and display around there, that has some idea of the museum. We probably may say it has always been with us since our consciousness kind of has revolved around the idea of, you know, collecting things. You may not consciously put them as a way of to display them, but, you know, unconsciously that is what you're doing. In the West, it now has this overtly organized way of doing things. In places like Africa, the idea of the museum did not really follow with this idea of arranging things in an organized way. Because it wasn't organized in the way that was expected from the Western perspective, does not completely nullify the idea of that thing being a museum. The idea of collecting is innately human. No society has a monopoly on this innovation. Yet there are certain Western values that are built into the way museums as an institution have come to organize, name, and display collections. Moreover, there's questions that need to be addressed regarding the origins of the objects found in many museums throughout Europe and the United States. Why is it that in Boston and New York, Paris and London, the creative and cultural output of peoples throughout Africa are on display? What is the history of how museums came to possess their African collections? What does this history reveal about power, possession, and knowledge? During colonialism, there was now this notion that African did not develop proportionately to their Western counterpart. At a time when slavery became outlawed, that now created this whole consciousness about territorial partitioning, how the Berlin Conference brought some European countries together and they sat and they deliberated around how they are going to partition Africa just to colonize Africa. Colonialism came with a very dark and brutal face. That very brutal side that began to show superiority 
creating this whole big notion that, you know, you have to look up to the West. During the colonialism, a lot of bad things happened. Among them was the way works of art was removed from the various cultures that the colonial administrators, you know, worked. So what colonialism now did in Anglo-African countries was this whole thing of stealing, I just want to be blunt here, stealing artworks and also collecting artworks by coercion. The history of how African cultural creations made their way into museums throughout the West is bound up in the exploitation of colonialism. But what is a concrete example that illustrates the ways coercion and theft are embedded within the legacy of African collections in European and American museums? Let's focus on the history of how ancestral screens from southeastern Nigeria made their way to Oxford, England, and eventually to the United States. Among the Talavari people of southeastern Nigeria, there was a practice where they created ancestral screens. Ancestral screens was created to you know, venerate family ancestors. And then at the beginning of the 20th century, British clergyman who was in that community was preaching against that cultural practice, calling it hidden practice, that everybody in that community was going to go to hell if they don't bring out those ancestral screens and burn them. And then a colonial administrator who was an anthropologist, his name is Amari Talbot. Amari Talbot now went into the community as this champion that wants to come and save them. He said, give them to me. You don't have to bomb them, just give them to me. So guess what Talbot did? He carried all these ancestral screens to Oxford in England. And they formed the basis of the collection of the Petrivers Museum. That was in the end. Any institution that has the ancestral screen in their collection, they will trace the history of where that work was bought back to the Petrivers Museum at Oxford University. And any work created in that community that, that is the same ancestral screen today is looked at as fake. Some of those objects that fall within that category of looted objects started coming to America. Because American museum institutions also began to you know, grow that time and was also looking at what is happening in Europe and then getting its own institution in place. So one can say that the first set of African art objects that came to American Museum came at the very end of the 19th century. The history of how African cultural, religious, and communal objects made their way to Europe and the United States involves theft, taking without consent. But the questions of power do not end there. They extend into the exhibits at museums themselves. Objects do not speak for themselves, especially when they are removed from their original context, where they were embedded in belief systems, practices, and complex material cultures. Museums possess the power to create understanding through placement, arrangement, configuration, juxtaposition, and the use of plaques and descriptive language. Exhibits can flatten and decontextualize as much as they can illuminate and raise understanding. At times, they can even present Africa as primitive or exotic because of the way that material culture is presented. Let's look at some of the history of how knowledge of Africa has been produced in museums. 
this whole idea of you know being knowledge creators of the object that you never owned now started rearing its ugly face. The Western institutions, they want to create knowledge around objects that wasn't even part of their own. And that created a huge lot of friction. I traced that history way back to one of the most remarkable exhibitions in the 1930s. It was done by John Jones Sweeney. He displayed African art at MoMA in 1935. When you see the catalog of that exhibition, Although there was a small introduction that, you know, John Jusuni had wrote where he praised the vitality of the art, you know, he just spoke generally about how exciting these objects are. But that was where it stopped. What John Jusuni did in that exhibition was just to display these objects because there was no idea about what the objects were. They were displayed just like that without any information source surrounding the works. That was how things were because they were comparing them with, you know, how a modern painter, for instance, painted something or created a piece of artwork. They saw them just as pieces of, but that wasn't the ideal. That was a very wrong way to represent African art. So not until the 1950s when Roy Sieber graduated with a bachelor's degree in art history, but focusing on Africa. That was when what looked like a more organized way of understanding the species came into being. And what Roy Siva did in his time was that he took a trip. He actually started this whole idea of this field trip going back to Africa to do field research among the cultures that he was working on. So coming back with, from the field, he was equipped with a whole new kind of knowledge that, that he has brought back from the field. So those knowledge now helped in different ways to identify some of these objects. What Roy Siba did at the time was that they were now very precise to knowing the geographical locations where various objects had come out from. So in the 50s and the 60s, the way African art were displayed was that you see that they were displayed along the lines of the various geographic locations that it came from. This was how Siba and, and his colleagues in the 60s displayed African art. It made it look as if African cultures existed in a world of their own. So every culture is just you. There is nothing, anything happening within this culture does not spill over to the other culture. There was no relationship, no connection between cultures. One long-standing problem in the structure of exhibits of African culture is that the continent was made to appear isolated and remote from the rest of the world. This and many other problems with the way museums present African cultures has been addressed over time by curators, curators who work to disrupt misrepresentations of Africa. So how are exhibits changing to address some of these problems of misrepresentation? What does it look like when museums showcase African connectedness rather than a false sense of isolation? We should find a theme that brings culture together. And that is what it was in Africa. We know that the Yoruba bronze casters was invited from the Yoruba country of Ife to Benin City to teach the Benin craftsmen how to cast bronze. The Igbo people of eastern Nigeria, we know that there were itinerant artists, some of them who made costumes for masquerade. Some of them traveled from the eastern part of Nigeria to the middle belt of Nigeria where the language was totally different. But when you see the works of their masquerade costume and those from the Igbo country. It's the same thing. And they have traced that history that there were some itinerant costume makers who traveled from the East looking for how to make money. 
and they found themselves there. So we have gotten to that point where rather than follow geographic lines, we create themes in our display. And then those themes will help bring culture together because a lot of ideas kind of circulated from culture to culture. I did not think that there was any African culture that wasn't conscious of, you know, organizing ceremony to make sure that they have bountiful harvest. That was the general thing among all cultures. There was no culture that would tell me that when the family is, is bequeathing their daughter to a man, there was not going to be an elaborate ceremony. It has always been there. And it happened in many other cultures. That is where, where we are. And then, of course, with this whole new thing going on, we are now also strongly advocating for the insertion of the voice of the community that created these objects into the object so that our audience will understand even much more deeper. That, in and of itself, is a way of correcting this whole wrong idea of you know, knowledge creation that has always been the case when those works first started entering museums and those museum workers probably didn't know what they were and were very and we're just kind of creating knowledge by themselves around those objects. It is one thing to correct misrepresentations of Africa in museums by producing more sophisticated themes. This demonstrates a more sensitive and nuanced form of representation that does justice to the interaction influences of African peoples throughout and beyond the continent. Yet this still does not address the issue of theft, of coercion, of who maintains possession and who is deprived of access and ownership of cultural products. So how are museums grappling with questions of return, of restitution? What are the different models for addressing the history of theft and coercion? In 1977, that was when Nigeria hosted a festa, which is the Festival of Art and Culture. And the logo for that festival was one of the heat masks that represent the head of the Queen Mother of the 15th century King of Benin. It is in the British Museum. They refused to give it to Nigeria. When they even asked, and Nigeria actually requested just to borrow it. British Museum refused on the ground that they are not sure that it will be taken care of correctly in Nigeria. And November of 2017 was when Emmanuel Macron the France president was delivering some speeches in West Africa. He declared that, you know, French cultural institutions were going to return all objects that were stolen during colonialism. Benin, for instance, have made requests for their objects to return. They have not said bring everything back. They have said return some. At least some should be there as an ambassador of our culture and what we created. But all those requests fall into deaf ears. But I think in 2017, something different happened. The caliber of the person making the, the, that speech was also one of those very high-stake players in global affairs, the French president. And then to match world with action, he commissioned two scholars, one economist and one art historian, to do the research and come up with a white paper where they advocated for relational ethics. We have also been working with the three arrows. It's repatriate, reparate, and restitute. They are all almost the same thing, but actually they have different nuances around them. Like, you know, restitution is when you pay something. So, you know, repatriate is to return. To correct those injustices of the past, you should return those objects that were stolen back to the cultures that owned them. 
by returning those things, that history, that bad phase of history would have been compensated for. Return to me. Sometimes people would think that return is just carry everything physical and go return. Physical return is, is also there, but you know, another kind of return that I've advocated for, I would continue to advocate for, even though a lot of my colleagues from the continent sometimes don't like it, is the idea of repatriate but with sense. Admission of guilt to me go a long way. When you admit the guilt, at least some of the anger would have gone down. For the time that this looted or this um, stolen object has circulated around the West, it has generated a huge financial base for this institution. The reparation side is where you pay something, at least to appease for all that you have gained out of my you know, material. So repatriation will now be that process for returning or for trying to recompense or trying to correct some of those dark face of the past. But it's not only artwork. Because during that colonial time, a lot of different things happened. You know, some artworks that were actually remains of the ancestral remains were removed. All those that has to do with human remains that are even much more delicate and much more attached with the culture. I don't think there is any negotiations around those ones. Those ones need to go back first. Repatriation, reparation, and restitution are three ways to address past wrongdoing. These are ways for museums to return, compensate, and work towards making an amends for the troublesome ways African collections were previously created. Yet museums continue to acquire new items all the time. How do museums work today to ensure that any future acquisitions of African artwork and cultural objects do not replicate the ethically dubious processes that we've so far discussed? What tools and procedures are in place to avoid further and future harm. When the museum boasts that it has some of the most exquisite pieces in their collection, this is not just by way of going to the open market and buying a piece and bringing it to the museum. There are a lot of research that goes behind the scene to make sure that what you are bringing into your museum is clean. When I say clean, completely clean, there are no entanglements around it. We now try to be proactive we are also actively working to make sure that some of the materials or some of the artworks that we have collected that come from Africa that was that were bought in Europe, we make sure that they don't fall within that category of, um, of looted objects. And how we do that is through this whole thing that we call provenance research. Provenance research is the research that we conduct to help us make sure that an object is clean from all these historical entanglements, including stealing and uh, coercion. Once we find it, it falls within those entanglements, those objects, first and foremost, will have to get down from the walls of the museum and then negotiations about how to get them back to where they come from will actually follow. Are there any circumstances under which returning objects is not the only or even the ideal solution for addressing the history of theft and coercion underpinning museums and so much of their African collections? In as much as we want the objects to come back, Maybe we don't want all of them to come back. We want a great deal of them to come back, but we also want some to remain out there. It becomes an ambassador that, you know, has stood the test of time. Social studies teachers spend so much of their time thinking about their own role as knowledge producers in the world. The classroom is a place where information is gathered, ideas are shaped, 
topics are selected, issues are framed, and understanding is born. So what does it look like to bring the history of museums and questions of knowledge and power into the classroom? Why should students know about the ethical considerations of curation and display? Let's turn to a teacher and learn more. My name is Hannah Cohen. I'm a social studies teacher in Sharon, Massachusetts. We have a core theme in the World Studies program, which is the power of a story. And not only how do we tell our stories, but what is the impact of the stories we learn on our behavior and how we understand the present. And our Africa unit is really, I think, where that shines. We try to focus on not only understanding the stories that were told by colonizers about Africa that led to imperialism and that have led to the modern day challenges that many African nations face, but also to try and replace those stories or at least add stories alongside to say, how can we appreciate the cultures and appreciate the progress that has been made? We actually use the scene in Black Panther that starts off with Eric Killmonger as a jumping off point when he initially starts in a museum and says to the curator, how do you think your ancestors got these? Uh, we use the case study of the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston because it's local as a really important spot. So when we go back to talking about how do you think your ancestors got these, the MFA provides a perfect case study. The Museum of Fine Arts has wonderful collections from all over the world and like museums all over the world, they face the controversy of how those artifacts came to be housed. So in particular, there's a collection of Benin bronzes that have been housed there since about the 1970s. Many of them trace to an 1897 British raid. In 2012, they put them on display for the first time as the full collection. And in that announcement, the country of the Benin Republic actually requested that they be returned. So for about a decade now, there has been a lot of controversy around this collection. So we had a lesson that we used to do in actually our World History One program when we talked about medieval West Africa and understanding why it is that when we talk about Africa, we so often don't have an understanding of especially that rich medieval history and looking at that controversy. Introducing the controversy around museum collections and classrooms requires resources. Not every teacher will be able to take students to a museum to learn and critically analyze exhibits. So what resources are there to bring this study into the classroom? There's a database called Thoughts on Art that has some really helpful overviews of a number of controversies, including the Museum of Fine Arts collection. And they talk about how many of the arguments for keeping the artifacts in Boston are based on the idea of safety or the idea of education and helping people to see these different perspectives around the world means that we can gain a greater appreciation for Africa as a whole. And part of what's important with talking about the kids is helping them to recognize that Although there is legitimacy in saying that artifacts need to be kept safe and legitimacy, of course, in a world history classroom to learn about other cultures and have that opportunity, that we need to break down the essential colonizer Western thinking of saying that things are inherently not safe when they're housed in Africa and that the only way for us to make right what was wrong is to keep on the same course and that so much of the systems that are in place around how do we decide when an artifact gets returned are set up to make sure that the status quo remains the same. 
The Everyday Instagram account features photographers from all over the continent. And the goal of that program is showing not just that single image of Africa. And so every single day of our Africa unit, we look at an image and we break down how the photograph is telling us a story. What has the photographer chosen to select? How have they used their caption within that? And so it gives kids a chance to do some of that kind of critical analysis of photography and the way that I find that especially students have this assumption that photography is truth and helping them to understand that photography is truth of a moment or photography is truth in the way it's displayed. But if we only ever have one photograph, we don't have the full picture. And so when we get to actually looking at museum collections, I find that they have a good critical eye for thinking about the way things are placed and why it matters. Hannah mentioned students having a good critical eye when looking at museums. She's also discussed the need for students to see beyond one image and one story. What are some other overarching learning objectives that can help orient the study of museums? What outcomes emerge from this work in classrooms? I want them to understand that there is an argument in how objects are placed and there is a thought behind it. It's easy when we're younger to skip the little plaques next to things or not to read the little blurb that's at the entrance to give an idea of what the curator was trying to communicate and trying to help them understand that these objects didn't magically appear in this room together, that somebody put them together in a purposeful way to make an argument. I think that For example, although the Museum of Fine Arts has a lot of challenges around its actual collection, they do incredible work of how they frame those collections and how they actually explain them. So if you've ever actually been to the MFA African Artifacts Room, I find that it feels like a room full of objects with very little context. And it doesn't necessarily show differences between cultures or between timelines so that it it can flatten African history in a way where it feels like Africa has stagnated and not progressed since ancient times because everything is just in this room together without that. When you actually dig in with the plaques, a lot of that information is there. And I want them to think critically about why are these two objects placed next to each other? What is this object intended for? I want them to be taking that extra step of not just saying there's an object in front of me, is it pretty or is it not? And is prettiness the only measure we have of whether somebody is civilized? But also to look at, is the curator giving me some sense of what this object is like for the person who made it? I can't just walk into a room and say, I saw something, I'm done. I have to think about how will I recount this to somebody? How will I make sure that they get the nuance? And what's the power of the story that I tell? Classrooms are not museums, but they are social settings where knowledge is produced and Africa is represented. So what are some of the similarities and differences? And what does this mean for how teachers see themselves in the process of shaping knowledge and understanding? I think we have more control than a curator does because a curator puts something together and then has to hope that it comes across. And they don't necessarily have the power to pivot in the way where if a lesson doesn't land, I can attempt to fix it the next day. I can attempt to find another resource or bring another video in or bring another voice or find another activity. But there is a challenge of feeling like there just isn't the curriculum material out there that we need. And it means that when we're working in isolation, 
we're all going to struggle a bit to do it right because we're all trying to remake the wheel every time. I have to figure out how to arrange them into a story where students walk out with that excitement and enthusiasm for Africa. And what I've handed is a lot of things that build out a story of pity and shame. And it's hard to arrange that exhibit to get what I want. The more we can remind them that they are participants in history, the way they interpret it, the way they recount it to somebody else, that is part of the power as well, I think is encouraging civic-mindedness because it's encouraging them to think of themselves as part of that equation and part of that healing process and unfortunately part of that harming process too. That's it for today's episode. What Teachers Need to Know Africa Edition is a production of Primary Source, an education nonprofit dedicated to bringing the world into classrooms through professional development and curriculum. To learn more about Primary Source and to explore our podcasts and our other resources further, visit www.primarysource.org. Thanks to the African Studies Center at Boston University, whose support and collaboration made the creation of this podcast possible. To learn more about the center, visit www.bu.edu slash Africa. And to learn more about the center's Teaching Africa Outreach Program, visit www.bu.edu slash Africa slash outreach. I'm Dan from Primary Source. Thanks again for listening.